Some of you may or may not know that tomorrow night is a very, very special occasion. Not here in the States, but in the land of England. It is a day set aside to celebrate the death of a man by the name of Guy Fawkes. And what happens on that night is a big bonfire is created. And it's a night that, you know, there's fireworks all over the, all over the place. So, so in a sense, what, what we experience on July 4th, when we celebrate independence in England, they have a similar kind of activity with fireworks and stuff, but it's all on Guy Fawkes night. And of course, there's a connection because Guy Fawkes Guy Fox. I'm not sure what's happening here, but I'm speaking like a... I don't know. Hello, testing, one, two, three. Is that good? Chipmunk disappearing. Rod returning. Um, you can give me like a really robust, deep voice or something like that. That would be fine. But All right. But uh, Guy Fox. Um, was a kind of a, a leader of uh, some, some, some rebels against the, um, the government of, of England. And uh, he, along with those, those people, decided they wanted to blow up Parliament. And so they, were, they managed to get underneath Parliament by purchasing a land, or some land or renting some property near Parliament, making a tunnel, and they, they put 36 barrels of gunpowder under Parliament. The idea was to blow up Parliament as it was going on, and they were even willing to kill innocent people in the process. Well, the plot was uncovered. It appears from history that someone that was a part of that group had a conscience, and as a result of that, um, communicated some things, and uh, so they were captured, and uh, so this, this, this activity of betrayal and treason um, was such that he was, I believe, hung, drawn, and quartered, taken through the city. But on that day in England, they celebrate the capture of this betrayer of their people. Um, so if you ever talk to someone from England, you can talk to them about Guy Fawkes Day. All right, something foreign to us. But you know what? There's another famous betrayal. Of course, that's the betrayal of Brutus um, against his Caesar, right? And... and Brutus was a, a friend, an intimate friend of Caesar, who was, who, was, uh, who was convinced by an opposing party because Caesar had really kind of gone way too far in uh, his rule as emperor to be more like a dictator. And as a result, this smaller group of people turned against Caesar, and uh, he ultimately received 23 stab wounds from multiple different people doing it. And of course, the famous words, as Julius Caesar is there bleeding, along comes Brutus, and he says, even you, Brutus. Um, so it's a classic betrayal. Maybe more closer to home, we, we think of betrayals in America. We think of Benedict Arnold, who was a very, um, he was a heroic um, general in the, um, in, the, in the American army uh, during the revolutionary period. Um, but he ultimately turned against his own people and fought for the British and end up being on the losing side. Um, and so he is not looked on very well by people in our country. If you are from the Latino community, um, the name Donna Marina would be probably a word you are aware of, uh, a lady who joined up with conquistador Hernando Cortez um, to conquer and really 
abuse her own country. Um, again, these are all just stories of betrayal, but, but none of them really compares to the passage that we read here today. Because what we have here is a man by the name of Judas who lived with Jesus for three and a half years, who ministered, who went out and served, who, who listened, who was in his presence and saw his face and saw his character and saw the way he interacted with people. He saw the miracles, all of that. And yet he betrays Jesus. And so um, as we come to this text, uh, we want to just be mindful of what's going on. Let me just draw you back a couple of weeks ago because we looked at this text. And this text really is a sandwich text. And we saw that the last time we were in Mark where the issue there was really the failure of the disciples. That uh, uh, Mark 14 uh, really sets the stage for that. It ends with verses 50 and 51, talking about uh, how those disciples fled and did not stay awake. But in between all of that, we have the story of the betrayal of Judas. And so we want to come to this passage recognizing that this can teach us a lot about Christ, about Judas, about the disciples, about God's plan, but it can also teach us about us. And this morning I would like for us to consider this proposition, and this is a lengthy proposition, but it's, it's, I'm building a rationale from the text to help us understand how Jesus faces what he faces, okay? And here's, here's how I'm putting it. Jesus, having agonized in the garden, prayed, and submitted to the Father's will. If you remember, that's what he was doing in the garden. And there was a battle there. Jesus is resolved, and he was faithful. The disciples were resolved, but they ended up failing miserably. And now, because Jesus is resolved from this prayer and this submission to the Father, he now faces his arrest and betrayal with an authoritative resolve and demonstrates that he is in complete control. And if you want to kind of put it in more of a bullet statement, very, very simple, what we have here is Jesus exercising a controlled resolve. He knows what he has come to do. He knows that the betrayer is at hand. He knows he's going to be arrested, and he is resolved to press on in the plan of the Godhead to bring about the salvation of man. So let's jump into this. First of all, we have a controlled resolve in the face of an intimidating crowd. Let's read verses 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now you can imagine what this night was like. It's a rather large, intimidating group of men make their way through the city and eventually into the Garden of Gethsemane. It had been planned to perfection, and it involved the fact that this disillusioned and greedy disciple who had turned kind of against his master was now helping them to find out where Jesus was. And they were not going to leave anything to chance because... They wanted to make sure that finally they could seize him. Finally they could arrest him. Because ultimately, as Mark has been declaring for us, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to murder him. 
And so first, there's Judas, whom Jesus knows is about to betray him. Then there is a crowd made up of men from two primary groups. There are temple guards, and then there are these Roman soldiers. These temple guards, of course, the ones that are coming from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. I think it's, it's really... Um, from a literary perspective, important that we see this, these three groups. It's almost like it's coming to a head now. These groups that have been opposed to Jesus now have, have sent this entourage, have sent this crowd to arrest Jesus. So they put their plan to good use. There are also Roman soldiers. Luke reminds us of that. And of course, they are there. And of course, they're coming with their short swords. And after a predetermined signal is given, they swarm in and they arrest Jesus. Now, this was what the religious leaders had decided to do for a long time. They wanted ultimately to seize Jesus. That was their goal. But as you read this passage, doesn't it just all seem a little over the top? I mean, if you've been following who Jesus is, why so many people? Why so many clubs? Why so many swords? And in, in Jesus, he responds to all of this. If you jump down to verse 48 and 49, you see what Jesus says. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? I mean, he's challenging them, saying this is a ridiculous scene. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me. Now, see, the word robber refers to a bandit or a highwayman, um, probably someone that would likely fight back or somehow escape capture. It's also a word that describes Jesus as a revolutionary. But here's the thing. Jesus was no revolutionary seeking to use force or violence to overthrow Rome, he was not one who preached violence of any kind. So you, you know, here you are with all these, you know, all these people coming with clubs and all, you know, coming with swords, and they're coming to arrest one man who has not been violent at all. It just seems really over the top. Now the real question is this: Who is intimidated by whom? Is it really that the crowd is intimidated? Or intimidating, I should say? Or is it the fact that Jesus is intimidating? Who is really the one with the power here? Who is the one who can speak and call his angels if he wants to? It's Jesus. So what are they really afraid of? And I pondered this and thought this through. So these are my reflections on this. But, but consider these as we as we think through not only what we're seeing happening with the religious leaders, but even what happens in our own heart. I think they're afraid of, first of all, um, being exposed. Because Jesus had been doing that over and over and over again as he interacted with them during his public ministry. When he challenged them about picking grain on the Sabbath, 
when he challenged them about healing the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath, or the, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who, who washed their hands before they're eating in particular ways, but don't care about washing their hearts. They don't like to hear that. They don't like to be pushed. They don't like to be exposed for the hypocrites that they really are. And certainly being exposed is not a fun thing, and Jesus continued to do that. I would say secondly, it's because they were worried about losing control. Ever since Jesus ministered in Galilee, crowds had been consumed with his ability to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to perform all kinds of miracles. And when he preached, we're told that they were amazed and they marveled at what he said. And then add to that, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding a colt, the crowd gathers and says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this, this frenzy is mounting. And what's happening is that the religious leaders are fearful now that they are going to lose control. And then, of course, Jesus shows up in the temple and the they think, oh, we're, we're going to challenge him now. We're going to give him some tricky questions. And they did with a bunch of different strategies. And every question that they throw out there, Jesus answers and throws it back in their face. They were losing control. They had had enough. Their only answer was, let's seize him to get rid of him. So... They're afraid of being exposed. They're afraid of losing control. But here's another one. And this is the byproduct of those. It's they're afraid of losing comfort. They've been living in the luxury of leadership with its power and prestige. But with Jesus showing up on the scene, confronting their habits and their practices, there was some fear setting in because if, if what he says now is what the people listen to and they follow, then their position of prestige is going to be removed. But are these not reasons, friends, why we reject Jesus? Now, it could be that we're unbelievers who are rejecting Jesus, but even in the context of our walk, so to speak, with Jesus, we are also ones who reject Jesus. We don't want to be exposed. We don't want our sin to be laid bare before us so we don't even bother to pick up the word of God and read it. I mean, it's there to feed our souls, but we don't want our souls to be exposed, and so we say, nah, won't do it. We'll put up with it at church, because you know, we can go through the motions, we want to do that, but we don't want God to really expose our hearts for what's really there. Or, we don't want to lose our perceived control of our lives. We love being in control. We love being the ones who can make the decisions and, and create things that happen in our lives. We really don't want, at times, Jesus to take the wheel of our lives. We want to be in the driver's seat. And then we love the comfort that comes from our position, our power, our prestige. We love our comfort. And so we're, we're constantly doing battle, so to speak, wrestling with what God desires, what he's revealing, what he's showing. 
But let's also think about this. Jesus let go of his comfort and position in heaven, did he not? Jesus submitted his will to the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. He was willing to be publicly shamed and exposed on a cross, although he was completely innocent, so that he could bring about man's forgiveness. So there was this crowd. It was an intimidating crowd in one sense, but the reality is this is a large crowd coming with these clubs and swords because they were intimidated by who Jesus was becoming, and they wanted to get rid of him. But then there's this controlled resolve in the face of a betraying disciple. Mark has been building his case against Judas. His first, he first mentions him with the other disciples in chapter 3 and verse 19, just describing him as Judas who betrayed him. And of course, if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, oh, Judas, Judas betrays him. You're, you're reading the gospel saying, okay, I want to see how this unfolds. And, and you, you see Jesus interacting with the disciples all the way through here, but eventually when you get to chapter 14, you see this, this really kind of hit the fan. Because Jesus, as we know, was the one who, who carried the money bags. And we don't know specifically, but it's likely that he, he dipped into those. In chapter 14, though, when, when Mary anoints Jesus with an alabaster jar of pure nard, which was like a year's wage, he's had enough. What a waste. What's going on here? And so Judas leaves Jesus and the disciples to cohort with the chief priests the scribes, and the elders in order to betray Jesus. And they come up with with an agreement of this this amount of of silver, 30 pieces of silver. So now in collusion with the religious leadership, Judas leads the mob to where he knows Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the irony is, Jesus isn't the revolutionary that that Judas wanted, but now he leads a mob against Jesus as if he were a revolutionary. Just think about that. Jesus, you're talking about suffering and dying, and so you're not the revolutionary that I was hoping to follow, but now I'm willing to give you up as if you were a revolutionary that I was willing to follow. (laughs) It's just hypocritical. So now the betrayer is at hand. And Jesus has prayed and humbled himself to the Father's will. And he's about to drink the cup of sin and and the, the Father's wrath. And look at verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, this has all been arranged in the darkness of the night with the, the thick branches of the, the olive trees casting shadows from the moon. Jesus would be hard to spot. It's understandable that they needed this kind of arranged identification so that he could get up close and we could find out who Jesus really is. I know that he was out, he was public, but in the darkness they needed that. And it was customary to greet a rabbi with a kiss. Now, again, this is the United States of America. We've become a little bit kind of, you know, 
uh, you know, avoiding, not as bad as the British, right? The British kind of shake their hands at a distance, that kind of stuff. But you go to some countries, now let's take France, for example, you know, you, you do this, this kiss thing, right? There's, there's some affection there. And so there was, this, there was this kiss, though, that was unique to this relationship between disciple and rabbi. And it was a sign of respect, it was a sign of affection of a well-loved teacher. And this kiss was more than a light and friendly kiss. It speaks of an intense and an intimate lingering kiss of friendship. Now you know what it's like if you have kids. Hey, come over here. Let me grab you. I'll give you a noogie and then I'm gonna kiss you. And you lay a big fat wet one on their head, right? And it's a long one. Why? Why do you feel the freedom to do that? Because you have this relationship. Because there's intimacy there. And so that's what made this this act of betrayal so horrific. There was this, this lavish expression of love with a kiss which was in and of itself a sign for the actual exercise of his betrayal against his master. Now there's a biblical precedent for this. We find this in 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Just listen as I read this. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand, so Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Now, the, the point here is this. That we have this picture here of this, this intimate, brotherly, affectionate kiss, which was in and of itself an act of treachery. And the same thing is happening to Jesus in the garden. Judas' betrayal was the kiss of death. Death for Jesus, as he would eventually go to the cross and die, by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God, but death for Judas, as he would eventually throw away his 30 pieces of silver and hang himself for his treachery. So here's some questions. How can we be guilty of such behavior? What can we learn from Judas's betrayal? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, let's take up that last one. Why did Judas betray Jesus? And I want to, I want to, for us to consider just four answers to that question. Number one, ultimately we realize that although Judas spent this time with Jesus, with the other disciples, he was still an unbeliever. He is called, in John 17, the son of perdition. He was unable to grasp who Jesus really was. And so progressively there was this stubborn refusal to submit to Jesus as Lord of all. And friends, that is, that is true of all unbelievers. There's a stubbornness to submit to Jesus as Lord of all. The only thing that can break the stubbornness is a genuine belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that should remind us then 
that the unbelieving world around us doesn't care about the morality of Jesus unless that morality fits their worldview. And if that is true, then we shouldn't expect them to embrace a Christian morality, especially in the political arena. Why? Because they're unbelievers. Unbelievers do not want the weight of gospel reality or the morality that flows out of that on their shoulders, I would say pushing them to do certain things. They want freedom to do what they want to do. And they are going to be stubborn and they're going to rebel against it unless it happens to fit their worldview of what morality looks like. It should remind us that what people really need is not morality but the gospel. I just ponder that as you think about Thanksgiving coming up and Christmas coming up and being with family members and having discussions about how the election went, however it goes. What that person who is fighting for something needs is not some moral lesson. What they need is new life sees Christ as the only solution, as the only answer. I would say secondly, though, he was consumed by greed. He had opportunity to dip his hand in the money bag. It appears that he's willing to give up Jesus just for a little bit of silver. And friends, for us, it can be another idol of the heart, not just greed, Another area of this world that, that drives our passions or consumed by comfort or position or popularity or money or materialism or sexual gratification. And it's an idol that keeps you from falling on your knees and worshiping Jesus as Lord of your life. I want this fill-in-the-blank idol. And that is what I'm driving for, rather than saying, God, all of this is yours. And how I look at this should be through the lens of who you are and your gospel and what the word of God teaches. Judas doesn't want that. He wants his greed. He wants what he wants. Thirdly, I think another reason why he betrayed Jesus would be he sought ambition but found none. This is an inference, I would acknowledge, but I think it's a compelling one. His response and disappointment show that what he anticipated was going to happen didn't happen. So he joins up with the disciples and following Jesus. This is the popular miracle worker and prophet. I mean, wow, wouldn't it be great to be one of of his disciples? I mean, look at what he's doing in Galilee with all these people coming and being healed and demons cast out. He's performing miracles and we're on the water and he calms the storm and all this stuff is happening and Judas is present. Man, you want to be with a powerful leader. This is the one to be with. Woo-hoo, we're, gonna, we're just going to be a part of this movement. We're going to take over Israel. We're going to restore the kingdom. And Jesus ends up saying, 
the reason you're going to be persecuted is because the world hates me. And you're going to suffer. He's like, no, no, that's not, that's not the plan that I had. <laughs> See, so this is ambition that is not realized that produces now disappointment and ultimately him turning on Jesus. Now, some people say, I tried Jesus and he didn't do anything for me. You ever heard that before? Now, they wrongly assume that Jesus is their own personal genie who is supposed to zap them out of their problems and give them health, give them some finances, give them some prosperity, give them a life full of joy, vibrant friendships, and all sorts of fun activity. And friends, that is not what is happening in this world. You might turn on your TV and see a perceived lifestyle of the rich and famous. Some of you will remember that. But most people don't live that lifestyle. Most people work every day. And they're okay with it. And they have relationships and they have wives and children and they go on vacations to Disneyland. Now that was a mistake, I understand, but they go there, right? But boy... I tried Jesus and he didn't do anything for me. As if trying Jesus means that Jesus somehow was going to come into your world and give you all this physical stuff. And that's not what Jesus promises at all. He will give you life. He will give you abundant life as well as eternal life. But that abundant life has nothing to do with stuff. It has to do with everything being oriented now in your heart as it relates to the Godhead, being right with God, being restored to fellowship with him in such a way that now you can live your life with joy and peace and understanding in a way that glorifies God. You try Jesus, you must try him and submit to him. He wants you to obey him. He wants you to listen to him. So they come to Jesus and they make him out to be what they want him to be. When they hear the cost of following Christ, they turn away and give up on him. But the truth is they really never knew him. I tried him, but you really didn't know him. Fourth, I would say it was also his intention. I don't think Judas just sat there as Mary is pouring the ointment on Jesus' feet and wiping with her hair, and he's like, you know what? I'm just gonna choose right now to do this. No, in the story we find that Satan had entered into his heart. And in particular, if you read the New American Standard in John chapter 12 and verse four, this is what it says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, and this is in the story of, of that same account where Mary is anointing. In other words, the thought process had already started. The plan was already in his heart to betray Jesus, to do something. He hadn't maybe formulated exactly what it was, but there was this plan that was happening. So how does that happen? When did it start? By degrees, little by little, disillusionment, discouragement, disappointment, I've had enough, I'm giving up. 
And friends, there's a, there's a shock wave that we should all be experiencing today. And that is that the, 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 the drift for us is not kind of like a sudden change that happens in a moment. It is a steady dripping that leads us away from our submission to Jesus. And we don't even know necessarily that it's happening because the drift is slow. And that's why we need one another. That's why we need to be under the ministry of the word. That's why we need to be spending time allowing the word of God to fashion and shape in us to help us see what is going on in our hearts, to be exposed. So here's Judas betraying Jesus, an unbeliever consumed by greed, not realizing his ambition, and ultimately this thought and intention had been present in him for a while. So Jesus is experiencing a controlled resolve with this intimidating crowd, with this disciple who's going to betray him, but now also in the moment of one man's panic. Now we all know who this one man is. We know that this is Peter, but let's just remind ourselves what the text tells us. Verse 46, and they laid hands on him, in other words, the crowd, on him, Jesus, and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now Mark was the earliest of the gospels to be written and here does not include the name Peter. Now we don't know exactly why. Um, it's possible that including Peter's name at that point in time in the history of the church would have been a dangerous thing to do because he was a leader in the church at that point in time. Um, Forty years later, though, when John writes his gospel, he makes it very, very clear that this is Peter who um, pulled out the sword and cut off the servant's ear. Now, this tells us something about Peter, doesn't it? He has just said, if you remember the story, he has just said, even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Now, you have to love his loyalty, you have to love his valor here. I mean, you, you have to love that part of him. He is now, in the face of this well-armed and numerous um, mob, he's willing to take the position of forlorn hope. Now, you may not know what that expression is. It comes from uh, the soldiers during the Napoleonic era. And the, the forlorn hope were the group of men who were given the responsibility and the honor of being the first into battle, facing the barrage of all the cannon fire and, and the muskets going off, and the likelihood of them actually surviving was very, very slim. But in the face of all this, they were willing to put their lives on the line in a greater expression of heroism and valor knowing that likely they were going to die. Just think about this picture. Here comes this crowd. There's 11 disciples. There's Jesus. There's Judas leading this mob. They have, the, they have the clubs. They have the swords. And what does Peter do? I'm taking you all on. I'm taking you all on. I mean, he's, he's willing to die. Just get that. And in the process, he goes to, to strike one of the uh, 
The, the servants are likely a soldier who was dressed up. Probably it glanced off of his helmet and sliced his ear off. I mean, Peter is thinking that he, he is willing to die, but he is going to do all he can to stand up to this mob. Still, this is all Peter's plan. It's not Jesus' plan. Now, this is what we need to recognize, friends. Jesus was not trying to encourage any violence at all, but that is what Peter, in his own thinking, thought that he needed to do to defend his master. And so, in so doing, he cuts off the servant's ear. Now, friends, how easy it is for us to be out of step with Christ when we think that we're serving him, even defending him. I've encountered this while... Uh, while listening at times to some street preachers. You may have been in this situation before or even seen videos of this. And you may have someone who is actually speaking, communicating gospel truth. And they're challenged by people that are there. And what happens is a defensiveness kicks in, an attitude kicks in, and now there's a harshness and a defensiveness that comes out and the posture of the person changes and this, this hateful kind of spewing of gospel truths now comes out of the person's mouth. I mean, it's one thing to say to a group of people that are coming out of a bar, hey guys, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. If you don't humble yourself to him and receive his gospel, the end is hell. As opposed to, you're all pagans, you're all going to die and go to hell. It's true. Both are true. Now you're awake. <laughs> gospel truth, though, is to be communicated in a gospel manner that reflects that truth. And sometimes we think that we need to raise our voices or change our attitudes, stand our ground in such a way. And so this, this, this hatred in our heart for those who are opposing now kicks in, in gear and we begin to spew stuff that maybe we need to just stop. Have you ever found yourself standing for the Lord and chopped off some ears as a result? Speaking unkindly, speaking sarcastically, speaking with an arrogance because people don't know the word of God. And I understand the frustration of that. You're interacting with someone and say, well, you know, you know, uh, you know Jesus, blah, 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 blah. You know, and you're like, obviously you haven't read the Bible. That's what you're thinking. So you come out and say, well, if you really knew what you were talking about, you'd actually read the Bible. Now you have just undermined any effort to share the gospel. There's a manner by which the gospel is proclaimed. Do we believe and trust what God has revealed for us? And even Jesus' example in the face of opposition here. Now let me just give a caveat there. I'm not saying don't be bold with the gospel to speak God's truth. And some people will even accuse you of being obnoxious and rude because you're simply speaking God's truth. What I'm saying is guard your heart from the sinfulness that can rise up 
in some kind of a conflict or opposition that may be present. And you sense that, back off. Because your gospel words, although they may be true, are not being used as a salve for someone. They're used as a weapon. So be mindful of that. Now, interesting how Jesus responds in this, how he interacts. Now, it's not recorded in Mark's gospel, and I'm pulling this in just to kind of help us understand a little bit about Jesus and what he, he says here. In Luke, uh, in that account there, chapter 22, this is what he, Jesus says right after, right after um, the ear is cut off. He says, stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Now, Matthew's gospel, chapter 26, says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then John's gospel, chapter 18, says, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, he's speaking to Peter more than anyone, right? Put it away, Peter. Stop it, Peter. You're getting in the way, Peter. That's not the plan. Sometimes our good intentions are wrong and get in the way of the plan of God. Peter's actions didn't thwart God's plan, but they were not in conformity to God's will or his plans. God's plans are not thwarted by mankind, <laughs> even our failures. But he has a will for us. And what Peter was doing was not part of his will. So here's, here, here's something really important for us to consider here. The truth is, Jesus doesn't need your help so much as he wants your obedience. He doesn't need your help so much as he wants your obedience. God's going to do what he's going to do with or without your help. But what he wants from you and what he invites you to do is to come obediently to be a part of what he is doing. What we may think is the right answer solution may not be what God desires. So which, that means that we must allow then our thoughts and actions to be the fruit of the word of God in our lives. Again, how we were challenged last week. There, there's, a, there's a central nature to the word of God and it's, it's ministry in the body of Christ and in our hearts and in our growth toward Christ's likeness. It must fashion and shape our thoughts and then our actions. It means that we must determine ahead of time how we will speak to others or how we might posture ourselves so that we do not undermine the gospel that we are proclaiming. And so we, 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 we understand our weakness by saying, this is what I need to pull out or I'm not going in that direction because I know my tendency is to start getting riled up. In Matthew's account, just after Jesus speaks to Peter to put away the sword, he says, 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, just think of who Jesus is. He can speak it, and it happens. Peter, put the sword away. This is not how I want it done. I have a plan. We're following that plan, and it does not include violence against others. The only violence ultimately will be violence against himself. God wants our actions to be in conformity to his will. He understands that we want to defend him. He understands and appreciates the fact that we feel like we're standing up for him, but being rude, unloving, or becoming violent isn't part of God's plan. And Jesus is resolutely in control (laughs) of all of this. And then we find this controlled resolve in the face of Scripture's fulfillment. Because he says here, but let the Scriptures be fulfilled. In other words, what is happening here is all part of God's plan. It is all part of the Scriptures being fulfilled. And the strange reality is that in all of the commotion, there is one who is a picture of serenity, calmness, It's not the Roman soldiers, it's not the temple guards, it's not the leader of the disciples, it is Jesus himself because he is resolved to submit to the plan of the Godhead. My friends, Jesus is now alone in the garden. His disciples have fled, but he must be alone. The journey he has to travel is not one that the disciples or anyone else can travel with him. It is a lonely journey full of mocking, scorn, suffering, rejection, especially when the father turns his face away and pours out his wrath on his son, his beloved son. So what are the scriptures that Jesus is referring to? You could say, well, there's some specific ones and then there's lots of them. Well, let's look just kind of first of all in the context because we find this in Mark 14, 27. You might want to look back there. This is the the beginning of this encounter um, um, uh, right before they get into Gethsemane. And notice what it says, verse 27. And Jesus said to them, you will fall, fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that's what we're seeing here take place. Striking the shepherd and the sheep being scattered. But there's other passages that I think also um, speak to this. So that was actually him quoting Zechariah, chapter 13, verse 7. But then there's Psalm 69 and verse 4 that speaks of the hatred of the religious leaders. And, and, And John chapter 15 and verse 25, Jesus says this, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So these passages now are just beginning to take shape. These, These prophetic passages in particular out of the Psalms are beginning to to give a picture here of what's going on. David, when he was using this, was talking about the enemies of God who hated him. But the logic in Jesus' usage here is that if that's true of David, is it not true of the greater David, who is Jesus? 
Then there's Psalm 41 and verse 9. Jesus, after washing the disciples' feet and before the Passover meal, speaks to his disciples about following his example in suffering, and he says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Who ate my bread, or he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And he's quoting Psalm 41 and verse 9. And Psalm 41, verse 9 says, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Which is a declaration and a prophecy about Judas and his betrayal. See, all of this is happening as a fulfillment of what God has already said would take place. Now I'd like for us to consider probably a far more famous passage, but I think one that speaks volumes to this, and that is Isaiah 53. You could say the whole chapter, but we're going to focus here on verses 3 through 11. You may want to turn there in your Bibles. And I would encourage you, uh, you know, this, this is probably one of those passages of Scripture where I would encourage you to, to park, um, that your Bible would have one of its main creases in Isaiah 53 because it is such a powerful and prophetic section of scripture. And I just want you to, as I read through this, this text, I want you to notice all the words that God breathes out through Isaiah here that describe what is happening to Jesus because the servant that's being talked about here, this man of sorrows, is Jesus himself. It's looking forward to him. So Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he was esteemed, uh, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shear is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for this generation who considered that he was uh, cut off uh, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, that the will Sorry, the will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. I mean, just read through that. The striking of the shepherd. The striking of the shepherd. The striking of the shepherd. Just using different words. The striking of the shepherd. And he's saying, listen, all that's happening here 
is happening as a result of what scripture said would happen. And so Jesus, who is now resolutely in control, is able to face even what scripture says is going to happen to him. He is, in a sense, trusting, affirming, and believing, and being moved by the already breathed out word of God, which he was all a part of himself. And when we allow the word of God to be what drives us, we can stand resolutely in our weakness, calm and peaceful, because we know that we serve a great God who is completely and always in control. Now, as we just kind of bring things to an end, I want us to think about Matthew 27. And this is also in anticipation for what we're going to celebrate, the Lord's Supper. Matthew 27 records for us Judas' encounter with the religious leaders after he betrays Jesus. And he goes back to them. And here's what he says. And just want you to hear this as testimony from the one who betrayed Here's what Judah says. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they respond by saying, it's not a problem. You go sort it out. Now this isn't, this isn't repentance. This is not him getting right with God. But this is him declaring his betrayal for what it really is. Jesus, the innocent, spotless lamb, dying as our substitute on a cross, fulfilling the Old Testament requirements, perfect son, perfect savior, perfect sacrifice, bearing the weight of our sin and the wrath of the Father, breathes his last breath and dies. Before he dies, he says to Talisai, it is finished. Judas's betrayal did not hinder the cause of the Godhead. It was part of the plan of the Godhead to bring about the salvation of many. Now as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning, ponder how your heart has wandered and strayed and even betrayed the one whom you call Lord and Savior. So take a few moments just maybe in the quietness now before I pray to ask God to expose your heart, to reveal your sin, confess it, repent of it. And then together we can rejoice over that gospel that has paid for that sin and that has provided ongoing renewal, forgiveness, 
and restoration with him. Let's take a moment to be silent and to contemplate and to allow God to challenge us. Lord, we who are your children find ourselves at many times drifting in our relationship with you, justifying our sinfulness. Being stubborn, Lord, to follow your will. And Lord, we can be therefore distant from you, not Sensitive, Lord, to hear what you desire. But Lord, you're always there wanting to hear the prayer of repentance, a heart that is crying out for restoration, a heart that confesses sin. And you're, Lord, willing to receive us afresh. We don't deserve it, Lord. And yet, Lord, you stand with arms open to receive us. And so this, this morning, Lord, we, we, we give our prayers of confession. Lord, we, we come to you with hearts of repentance. And Lord, we ask now to sup with you, to fellowship with you as we take these elements, Lord, representing your body, and representing the the blood that was shed on our behalf. And to be reminded once again of the kindness of your grace and the joy of our salvation. Lord, may we revel in this and be restored through it. We ask in your precious name, amen.